going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Well, greetings and salutations, my friends. Happy Tuesday. Hope well is all is well with you and yours. Apparently, my mouth wants to be dyslexic today. That's always a great start. Let's head already into what is on the books for today's show. A lot of talk about how chilly it is. And in particular, the power supply is one big one. And animals. We all know you got to bundle up. But we'll chat, we'll chat with uh, Tara DeWeird from the Alberta Electricity System Operator after 4 o'clock as well. They, there's a couple of, I don't want to call them vague tweets, but there were a couple of tweets saying, hey, better watch your, watch your usage. Was, were we at risk? A few people were wondering, hey, are we at possibly having to do rolling blackouts, that kind of thing? Apparently, the answer is no. But at the same time, you just never know. And so we'll chat with Tara about that. Uh, we'll also dive into the cold from the animal perspective, as mentioned. And Colleen Baird will join us from the uh, from the Calgary Zoo to talk about what they do. I know there's a lot of people who are going to say you need to make sure your animals are kept inside because you can't let them outside for an extended period of time because otherwise they're going to be uh, prone to frostbite too, right? But what about the animals that are at the zoo? So Colleen Baird will chat about that as well. Uh, we'll also get the latest on what's going to be a couple of real big days over Country 105, our sister station with the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation Radiothon. It is one of those times of the year when you circle it on the calendar, much like Pledge Day here on 770 CHQR, and you get to share some stories. You get to hear a lot of the, the great work that is going down at the Alberta Children's Hospital. Justine Clay will join us as Radiothon begins officially tomorrow. We'll get to that after 5.30 this afternoon. We're going to start things off chatting healthcare. And one of the things that, I, I as I keep saying, we're into an election campaign. We're going to treat it like one. That being said, a little piece of news that kind of went under the radar over the last few days has been that Alberta Health Services, or Alberta Health, announced a new chief medical officer of health recently. Dr. Dina Hinshaw was the interim. Now she is the full-time chief medical officer of health in our province. And one of the things that I think a lot of people have been talking about is the opioid crisis. And not just from the standpoint of the safe injection sites or where all of these are happening, but just how do we get a grasp on this problem from the very, very grassroots level? How do we get there without needing to get to the point of the safe injection sites? That's priority number one for Dr. Hinshaw. She'll be joining us next. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. So to give you a little bit of background on Dr. Dina Hinshaw before we get to chatting with her is a little bit of her background. So she has been in the acting chief medical officer of health role over the past few months. She served as the deputy chief medical officer of health since 2017. Since 2010, she's worked in a number of roles in healthcare here in our province, including the central zone lead medical officer of health and lead medical officer of health for public health surveillance and infrastructure. Not only that, she's also an associate clinical professor at the University of Alberta and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary. I don't know if you can fit all of that onto a business card, but nonetheless, wanted to bring on Dr. Hinshaw to talk a lot more about, as mentioned, 
the opioid crisis and some of the things that are front and center for her heading into this term as being the province's new chief medical officer of health. Uh, Dr. Hinshaw, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm curious right off the hop is what is priority number one in your books? So I think it's really clear to everyone in Alberta. The the thing that I spend the most time on right now is the opioid crisis and the issue that's causing the death of approximately two Albertans a day is a number one priority in terms of a response and understanding not just how to deal with the immediate issue of the deaths, but also some of the underlying causes that uh, drive people um, towards the issues of addiction and, and issues of mental health. How do we get there? How do we come to getting to the root cause rather than dealing with it through uh, whether it's the safe injection sites or whether it's through other kinds of interventions frontline? How do we get to the, the even before that? Well, quite frankly, I, I think it needs to be both and rather than either or. So we are where we are and what we need to do is create an environment where uh, people who have issues with opioid use disorder or, or other addictions can get help in uh, safe places and that they're um, able to seek uh, help with um, supportive environments treated with respect and, and not stigmatized. And quite honestly, that goes back to maybe some of those root causes that end up giving people risk factors for um, going down that path to struggling with addiction is some of the issues that uh, people might experience in their early childhoods. I think the main message is this is not something that any one sector can do by itself. So we all have a hand in supporting our fellow Albertans and each other in uh, moving towards a, a healthier life together. You mentioned the stigma aspect, and I know that's been uh, a really big and in the headlines over the last few weeks, whether it's in Calgary with the safe injection site of the Schumer, or I know it's been a contentious issue in Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. How do you get that public buy-in to maybe understand the, the, the issues surrounding the safe injection sites and making sure that everybody is on board? Because as it's become kind of apparent, is it's not universally thought well of. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a challenge, but um, I think it's uh, a scary thing um, that the issue of of addiction and especially individuals who not only perhaps are experiencing an addiction, addiction, but perhaps have um, other struggles in their life, perhaps uh, that they don't have stable housing or other factors, I think sometimes because that's a a thing that that people might fear either for themselves or their loved ones, it's easier to um, to react with that that fear and stigma. And so I think what we're trying to do is we've supported different organizations across the province to do work on anti-stigma messaging because I think the most powerful anti-stigma messaging is is messaging that's heard from people's peers. And so really we as government continue to speak about the important uh, work of seeing people as people first and at the same time support those organizations across the province who have done great work and that's going to be coming out soon in 
the messaging about how opioid use disorder and addiction hurts every Albertan, uh, not just a particular group of people. And opioid use disorder does cut across all class lines and um, social lines and really there's no group of people who is spared from it. Mm. So the more we're able to respond with compassion, the better off we'll all be. One of the things, and, and I know TV is one thing, but one one issue that I saw through uh, the show Intervention was they had a little uh, series on the opioid em- epidemic near Atlanta, and there was a, a triangle area that was all suburbs. And I think one of the things that might be understated, as you mentioned, is this isn't just one part of the population that is is being affected by it; is it's seeping into you know the everyday lives of uh, those in the suburbs and those in the big city and those in the small towns and it's it's across the province isn't it it absolutely is and as you say it uh, impacts people from suburban cities to small towns to certainly city centers but there's no one place that uh, that is the only place that's impacted and again that's really why I think the more that we can all respond with compassion to those who are suffering from the issues that are, are brought up by the, the opioid crisis, the more we'll able to we'll be able to respond together effectively. One of the things that you that was mentioned in the announcement that you had taken over the reins was not only the opioid crisis but also the health care with indigenous people and I'm wondering uh, from that standpoint, even looking down south towards Lethbridge in that area they've they've talked a lot on the blood reserve per, uh, in particular about uh, the the opioid crisis there. How do you bridge that gap so that there is um, that level of support there? that there isn't a fear factor on either side and that everybody is is safe because this is obviously an issue that is is really hampering that area in particular. Well, one of the reasons that uh, the health of Indigenous peoples and improving health outcomes is so important to me is that I really see, again, when you look at um, the issues that Indigenous peoples have uh, had put upon them over the the last generations and you you look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations and findings that you can see the root causes of things like uh, the disproportionate impact that opioid use disorder is having on Indigenous communities and so I think collectively um, it's important again to recognize that uh, Indigenous Albertans are just like every other Albertan people first and that we need to work together to respond to the issues that were so clearly outlined in that in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission findings. Um, and again, that's something that, that I as Chief Medical Officer of Health would really want to be a part of and contribute to uh, making things better in terms of health outcomes. Final question for you here, Dr. Hinshaw, and, and I'm curious... What is priority number three in your books, whether it's wait times, whether it's uh, the reaction to certain issues? uh, What is on your priority list of things to do uh, heading into your term here? So number three for me is really looking to see um, whatever I can do to ensure that all Albertans have the opportunity to reach their full health potential. I think we know, you know, you mentioned the expectation that people take care of themselves, and that absolutely is true. And we also know that there are things in people's lives that make it harder for some people than others to uh, 
to be in that situation where they are able to to um, take care of their own health. So one of the things that is important to me is the term here is health equity, which really means does everyone have a fair shake at reaching their full health potential? And so that's something that I'm really interested in looking at and looking to see how we can better uh, support all Albertans to really take advantage of the resource for everyday living that health is. Dr. Hinshaw, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much and all the best in your new role with Alberta Health. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Dina Hinshaw has taken over as the Chief Medical Officer of Health here in the province of Alberta. And a few texts that I'll get to in just a second. I'll also kind of dive into some of the other issues that I think uh, Albertans need to keep in mind as they head into the provincial election. Some of the questions that I would love to hear answered by uh, all of the parties as well. And some of the things that really need to be, in my mind, addressed as we uh, head into this campaign. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. big questions that's come to mind when it comes to healthcare in in my head is wait times. And I know that we keep bashing our head against a brick wall on that front. But where do we go from here? Because the, the, the last time I was in an ER was I actually went to the AHS website to go check on those wait times and went, okay, this, I think it was Foothills, was the fastest moving, according to the website. Eight hours later, originally it had only sat about an hour and a half. By the time I got there, it had been increased to two. And I get it that they do the triage thing and they determine who's most seriously in need of help and all that kind of thing. But as you got talking to the nurses, as you got talking to the people who were behind the scenes, they were just saying, hey, we don't have the doctors back here that can do what needs to be done because all of a sudden there was an there was some sort of more serious incident that had them tied up. So how do we grapple with that whole? I know that there's no silver bullet, and that's that's the problem with this whole conversation is it's not easily fixed with a soundbite like, which we continue to hear, is we just need to cut middle management. We just need to cut the waste. Where's the waste, right? Like, and I'm not I'm not saying it out of, I actually think there is some. But nobody has actually outlined a clear and definitive way of being able to cut the fat. I said waste, I meant fat. Cutting the fat with AHS. There's a lot of people who, I've always said this, is what we need to do is take a look at the org chart for AHS. And take a look at the org chart for the most proficient healthcare system in the world. And go, okay, how do we do it the same way? And if it is being done the same way, then why are we not getting the same return on investment? That seems to be the quick fix there. The other part is, and it was brought up in one of the texts saying these problems were all amplified when government closed many facilities. I don't disagree with that because what ends up happening, and this is happening in seniors care as well, is a lot of the smaller town, and I get it, it's expensive to run them, but a lot of the smaller town facilities that used to run have been shut down. So as a result, what ends up happening is those people who need that care in the smaller centers are having to come to the big city. Those big cities are now over inundated with people and we don't have the resources to do it. It boggles my mind at one point and I can't say for certainty right now, but as an example, a few years ago, 
we were hearing stories about how the hospital in Brooks could not deliver babies. So you in Brooks, if you were pregnant and were about to have a kid, had a choice of being taken to Calgary, which is a couple of hours away, or you go to Medicine Hat, which is an hour away. Granted, if you're speeding, you can get there a lot quicker. But the point being is that's not necessarily a very rural area. Still a, a pretty good population base there. And you have to drive how long? Imagine being in, I'm thinking of Oyen. Imagine being in some of these communities that are really isolated. And you're having to go and you're helping in the backlog of it. So how do you fix it? I don't, and I'm not saying that we just need to open up more hospitals in more urban settings. Because then the problem becomes, how are you attracting and maintaining the doctors and nurses that are on staff there? So again, it's a multi-pronged issue that we face with healthcare. And so I would love to have a conversation that involves not using the words. We just need to cut the fat. It's much more complicated than that. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. The other main story for discussion over the last little while has been the deep freeze, clearly, and... The Alberta Electric System operator over Twitter asked residents to limit their energy consumption over the last couple of days. And it made a few people question whether or not we were going to have rolling blackouts before too long and what the story really was. So joining us now on the program, the manager of public affairs at the ASO is uh, Tara DeWeird. Tara, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Happy to be here. A lot of questions have been raised over the last couple of days, especially after a couple of tweets from you guys talking about the need to conserve. And the question has become, were we facing a shortage at any time or were we up against the wall? Can you give us some insight there? Sure. So I want to start by saying, um, actually, today and in, in looking out into uh, the short-term future, the grid conditions are actually looking good. So um, I'm happy about that. I'm sure uh, everyone else is as well. Oh, I bet. Um, but what happened over the last couple of days was the extreme weather, the cold that we've been facing, tends to drive up consumption. Um, people are using more power uh, to heat their homes and have, you know, maybe additional appliances going on, that sort of thing. Um, we also have uh, a lot of industrial in, in Alberta, and so, um, you know, they're ramping up their operations. Mm-hmm. We have that happening, coinciding with, um, you know, sometimes our generation units will go down for unplanned maintenance. Something, you know, goes wrong in their facility and, and they need to fix that. And so, if we get into a situation where we're losing some of, of our power and we have increased power consumption, um, that's where things get a little bit tighter on, on the grid. So when you guys send out a note over Twitter and saying, hey, you know what, if you can conserve energy where you can, what kinds of things should Albertans be keeping in mind? If And I know that you know things seem to be in the clear right now, but you yeah. never know. Mother Nature has a weird way of operating this time of year. For sure. So, you know, one thing I want to reassure Albertans is that we have system controllers that are operating the grid behind the scenes 24-7, and they're paying very close attention to to what's happening. And they have a robust set of procedures that they go through to make sure that they're able to keep balancing um, 
supply with demand. But what we do want to do for the province is if we get to a point where, you know, we are seeing that um, things are getting a little bit tighter supply-wise, we want to let the public know. We want to give them some uh, tips, some things that they could be doing to conserve energy. Um, And and I do want to clarify that both yesterday and uh, the day before, so that would have been Sunday, um, we weren't at a point where we were nervous that we would um, start losing power, um, but we were at a point where, you know, things are um, just getting a, a bit more um, uncomfortable. We're having to go through some of these uh, procedures, so I, you know, it's it's a good time to let Albertans know. Uh, so what we did uh, yesterday was tweet some energy conservation tips, just letting Albertans know that, um, you know, it is a good opportunity when we're in those peak times to look at how we're using our power. Yeah, and what are some of those tips that you might have? Sure. So um, it's important for Albertans to know as well that peak uh, power consumption usually happens between about 4 and 7 p.m. and typically during um, the work week, Monday to Friday. And so during those times, if they can avoid, you know, plugging in space heaters, uh, having unnecessary lights, on um, electrical appliances like a blender, um, avoid using major appliances like a dishwasher, um, you know, washing your uh, clothes, drying your clothes, that sort of thing. All of those things can uh, really make a difference and and help to conserve power, particularly between those uh, peak hours of four and seven. Mm, Some good tips for, uh, especially, like I said, when we know that Mother Nature isn't quite done with us yet, and you know old man winter's right around the corner uh, waiting to jump back into the fray again. So, Tara, I do appreciate the time and some of the tips today. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to chat with you this afternoon. Tara DeWeird at the Alberta uh, Electric System Operator here on Calgary Today. As the cold has settled in, I noticed that my puppy isn't exactly that happy about going outside. This morning, I let her out. She goes, uh, does her business, comes back, and was at the door as soon as possible. She wanted nothing to do with old man winter. And I get the feeling that a few of the animals at the Calgary Zoo might be thinking the same thing. Like, you know, usually we do the outdoor tour. Not doing that today. Joining us now from the Calgary Zoo's curator, uh, Colleen Baird. Colleen, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. What kinds of challenges do you guys face at the zoo with the cold? Uh, there there can be some challenges for sure. Um, you know, we're always watching buildings and making sure that building temps are keeping up to parameters that the animals need. We have a lot of different animals with different needs. So we have some... Uh, such as like gorillas, um, you know, they need it to be warm. They're not used to cold or snow. Um, but then we have some animals like tigers, which, you know, we don't have to worry about the building getting too warm because they like it on the cooler side. So we're paying attention to building temps and temperatures that we need to keep warm. And then we're keeping an eye on the guys that like the cold. So that would be like our snow leopards, our tigers. We have a lot of Canadian wild species. And we keep an eye on them. And then we provide them with a couple of different things to help keep them a little bit more comfortable. Even though they like the cold, there's some things that can make their world just a little bit nicer. So we provide them with more bedding, such as straw, um, making sure that they have enough places to like not... Uh, be wet or stay wet. So if they're laying in snow and they're getting wet or if they're running around and they're getting sweaty, we want to make sure that they can dry off in a quick way so they're not out with the wind chill and uh, and are wet. 
Yeah, is that one of those things that do you ever have to, especially with the say the the Canadian uh, wilds in in that area where they might be acclimatized, they might know what winter is like, but by the same token, there there comes a point where even the the hardiest of beast is going to sit there and go, I don't like this anymore. So, is, yeah. are there are there shelters that they can go into if need be, or give us a little bit of an explanation on that front? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for example, like our Siberian tigers, they don't mind minus 20. Uh, but when we get like minus 25, minus 30, you know, I think that they they don't mind to be outside if they're active. But when they're sort of hunkering down and sleeping, it's better that we can take the edge off. So that's where they would lay in the straw bed or seek shelter. We have some different shelters um, that they can get some refuge from. Wind is a big concern for us. So in the Canadian wilds where we have a bunch of the mountain goats, uh, bighorn sheep, we have doll sheep, we have moose, elk. We want to make sure that they can seek refuge from the wind chills. So, you know, they have places where they can go that there's, uh, you know, two walls, so a corral area or deep bed in a like a in a swell or a lower part where the wind won't get them mm-hmm. and they know how to find those places animals are very smart and they can figure that out we just need to make sure that we can provide them the substrate in the right location so when we start seeing those behavior changes or we know that the the weather's turning we'll start bringing up more straw we'll start making sure that they have access to water that's not freezing um and they have their shelters in and are using them on the flip side, you have those animals that will never be caught dead in the cold of winter. Like they, you know, there's some that uh, have never seen winter for that example. But I do wonder on in those cases, they might get a little stir crazy because they might be used to, I'll say, the giraffes, for example. They might be the ones to say, hey, you know what? I, I like it indoors, but I'm used to being outdoors as well every once in a while. How do you avoid them getting a little bit stir crazy being inside for a few days at a time? That's an excellent question. Um, it's we do have a we do have quite a to give a diversity of the animals that you get to see when you come to the zoo. We do have those ones that that can't go out in winter, mm-hmm. or have a very low toleration for some cool weather. So maybe minus five. Um, so like gorillas and giraffe, um, hippos, those kind of species, we make sure that we increase our enrichment. So we give them more things to be occupational for them. So we give them different ways to like, you know, work through finding food or stuff that can really use their brains, trying to break through a box. Um, we will scatter food so that they're moving around a little bit more. Um, and we do some training sessions so our keepers interact with them and, and they'll make them um, ask for some behaviors and they'll present their mouth or a foot. And we just engage with them a little bit more. So when they're indoors, one, we have more access to them because we also like to be indoors. Uh, although we're quite hardy, zookeepers are very hardy and they're <laughs> well prepared to be outside. But but we'll engage with the animals uh, more and, and keep them sort of more stimulated. I know in the, the education world, there's a threshold. You know, if the wind chill is minus 40, you're closing things down. Mm-hmm. Is there a threshold that you guys have in terms of, okay, no animal is going out because this is the wind chill is just too much for anybody to handle? Um, well, we do do that with the penguins. So surprisingly, the penguins do have some temperature parameters, which are, you know, if it's too warm or too cold, mm-hmm. uh, they can't go out. So we will have our king penguins who like it quite cold. Um, they won't go out if it gets, uh, I think if their parameters like almost minus 20, 21. Okay. Um, so if it gets too cold, then, then they just won't go out either. Yeah. So some can handle the cold, but, but maybe not that extreme. <laughs> and you're like, you're in. 
That's it. Yeah, you're sorry for your luck, but you're staying <laughs> yeah. inside for a while. It's not like uh, students who are sitting there going, "Yay, snow day or cold <laughs> no, day." Exactly. It's a little, little different, I'm a sure. A little bit different. Yeah, no, yep. that's uh, great to have a little bit of insight there. I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Happy to talk. Colleen Baird, the curator at the Calgary Zoo, talking about the challenges that old man winter brings when it's this chilly in the animals. Although, as one texter <laughs> writes it, those muskox must be loving it. I wonder what it's like for them. Maybe, maybe we should do this when it gets really, really warm out. Is talk about those animals, like the bighorn sheep. It can't be comfortable having those things on your head while you're, while it's plus forty. Another topic for another day. Scounder today on seven seventy CHQR. Speaking of tomorrow, a big day over at our sister station, Country 105. The annual Radiothon is upon us for the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation. And every year it gets me. I end up hearing a story and it's like, ah, there go the waterworks. It's it's over. It's done. But it's all for a good cause. And joining us now from the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation, Director, Communi- uh, Director of Communications, Justine Clay. Justine, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pretty big few days coming up for the Alberta Children's Hospital and the Foundation with Radiothon. Walk us through what's going to happen over the next few days. Oh, sure. So Radiothon is our favorite time of the year over at the Foundation at the hospital, and I hope Country 105 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for the next three days, we're going to be opening up the hospital to um, the community. Well, it's always open to the community, but over the airwaves, Country 105 will be coming into our cafeteria and broadcasting live for three days from 6 a.m. till 7 p.m. And every hour, we're going to be featuring stories from two different um, children and their families, uh, talking about the impact that this hospital has had on them, and more specifically, the impact that community funds to this hospital have had on care that they've received. Um, We'll be hearing from hospital experts, and um, hopefully those phones are going to be ringing, and we're going to raise some money this this week. This is one of those times of the year that I think a lot of people circle on their calendars, because not only do they get to get get an inside glimpse of some of the affects for kids, but also an, an opportunity to maybe connect and And from your standpoint, I mean, there's got to be a few stories that uh, ring true to you. One and two is uh, maybe leaves you a little bit misty eyed. Yeah, well, you know, it is. And, and, you know, Radiothon is definitely an emotional roller coaster for those three days. But, you know, after those three days, the radio station packs up and we, you know, we go and have our weekends and there's still kids and families here over the weekend. And of course, all year round. And it's you know, we measure our years in different ways. Sometimes it's fiscally or sometimes it's January to December. I always think about my year and the years here as, you know, um, since we, you know, since Radiothon was live last, what families have come in here and, you know, and what, how has their story changed? And so I always get a little bit philosophical around radio, radio time because, or Radiothon time, because I think about those families and I think when, what was that day that their lives changed and what were we doing, you know? And so for these three days, this is a time when people can listen to the stories and what it is, is just pure, pure storytelling. And it really gives us a chance to engage with each other and to connect with each other and to get back to that, you know, that old-timey fundraising and picking up the phone and showing our support uh, uh, for, for our neighbors and for people that could really be us. 
And there's another big part of this, too, is not only the awareness aspect, but also what you end up getting out of much like Pledge Day here at 770 is Mm -hmm. you get that opportunity to connect, but you also get that opportunity to see some of the people who were uh, who utilized the hospital and they come back as almost mentors or they come back almost as people that are uh, spokespeople for your own organization again. And it becomes that thank you economy. You know, I think that when we phone, um, we have the, I think we've got the best communications jobs in Calgary that when we work at the foundation <laughs> at the Children's Hospital because we have the opportunity to connect with these families. It's a real privilege to be able to hear these families' stories and to, um, it's just really, really amazing that, that families will not only open up to us at the foundation, but open up to Calgary when they take part in Radiothon. And I think that really speaks to, um, A, how good Country 105 is at this event. And I think by making everybody feel welcome and supported because they are welcome and supported and we are right with you. Um, I also think it speaks to the care at the Alberta Children's Hospital. And I think that, um, you know, well, I know that very often, you know, families are saying uh, we, we're happy to do whatever we can. And if sharing our story is our way of giving back, then so be it. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about uh, the opportunity for these families to speak up, but also during the course of the year, you guys get a pretty good sense of how days like Radiothon affect affect them. Talk about what it means to them to be a part of it and to be able to see the direct benefits from Radiothon. Well, I can't speak for the families, but the feedback that I do get is that, um, you know, people are very excited when we call and we mention Radiothon. I think they're, I think they know that it's coming. Um, but I, I do see, you know, I do see the benefits. This is our 16th um, this is our 16th yeah. Radiothon. If you told me in 2003 we'd still be on the air to the tune of $24.5 million just from Radiothon alone, I wouldn't have believed you. And um, here we are, and it really doesn't seem that long ago. But if you could stitch magically all of the broadcasts together back-to-back and somehow listen to them, you would see the stories changing and the mm-hmm. stories getting better and yeah. the care getting better and the care getting more precise and more and, and quicker diagnosis and um, and just more supports. And the stories are very different than even 16 years ago. And that's just the time that we've been on the air. And that's just one event. Yeah, it's a fantastic event. And like I said, it's one that I think a lot of people circle on their calendars to at least. Uh, I don't I'm not advocating for people to change the radio station by any stretch of imagination. <laughs> <I am>. But <laughs> that being said, if you get an opportunity to take a listen to the Country 105 uh, Radiothon for the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation, by all means, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of insight into this, Justine. That's nice. Thank you so much for having me. Justine Clay at the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation, who also wanted me to point out that this year they have one donor who's willing to match all funds raised. That's insane. Kudos. Still insane. Is it Austin Matthews? It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.